I'll warn you, I am very, very drunk. <laughs> <laughs> that was a uh, fast show reference for those who don't know, but I, no, actually, I'm very, very, very sick. Oh, are you? Yes, I have uh, quite a fever, and uh, my nose has become a haven for mucus activity. Oh, dear. Haven for mucus activity. That's right. It's like a tax-free haven. This is like a, a, a mucus-filled haven. Anyway, as a result, uh, there's going to be, need to be some copious editing required, I think, to uh, cut out lots of sneezes and tissue blows and wipes and snorting and, and grinding and Lovely. groaning and stuff. Well, I, I'm not feeling ill, but I have two men outside cutting down a tree. Oh, okay. So <laughs> that is also potentially going to be disruptive. We'll have to see. They literally started like 15 minutes ago. So there might be lots of crashing and banging and trees falling down. But we'll see. Excellent. Well, that'll complement my uh, nasal <laughs> voice and snorting very nicely. It's going to be a, an episode filled with sound effects. That's right. But it's wonderful to hear your voice, Danny. It has been a very long time since we've... I think this might be the longest that we've gone without talking to each other since we started doing this podcast. I think it is. Could could we call it a hiatus? Could we could we do that? We could. It's sort of involuntary because we, we were hoping to record a couple of weeks ago. Mm. And then it would only have been... We would have had no missed episodes and we would have only gone one episode without talking to each other, which we've done before. Right. But uh, because of various circumstances, that wasn't possible. So... Uh, so it's ended up being a whole two episodes off in a row, one guest episode and and one lacking episode. Right. And we haven't spoken for a month and a half. Well, we are back. We are we are back with a vengeance. With vengeance, we have a lot to talk about. Actually, um, before we do start, I would like to just uh, drop in two little bits of kind of follow up. Oh. The first one is that I would like to uh, extend a warm hello to our uh, listener in Russia. I don't believe that he is the only listener in Russia. However, he uh, took the time to send us a very, very nice message to uh, say how much he enjoyed the show, which is wonderful. Yep, that was very nice. It was Vitali. I think I'm not certain about the pronunciation of what is quite a common Russian name, <laughs> right. um, but I'm going to go with it. And uh, yeah, it was, it was always nice to receive personal messages like that by email or Reddit or any other medium. But uh, yeah. He'll probably hear this in a month or two because he's going back and, and listening from the beginning. So, Oh, okay. He's <laughs> a, a truly dedicated listener. So, yes, hello, Vitali, and thank you for listening. And please recommend us to any of your friends who might be interested. Uh, we we need to uh, kind of bolster the Russian contingent of our... Uh, We're trying to make it big in Russia. That's a big, that's right. big goal for us. Russia is, is one place that I would love to visit. It's such an enigma to me. You know, it's so... It, there's so much about it that uh, is kind of mismatched between what you hear about it from outside Russia, right. and then you know what you what things that we know about it from inside Russia, and um, yeah, it's just uh, such an enigma. I'd love the chance to visit one day. Where would you go? Because it's such a big country as well. Yeah, I, I really don't know. I mean, I, I don't know enough to sort of have any specific you know idea of oh, this is where I'd like to go, other than you know. You know, somewhere like Moscow or Saint Petersburg or that kind of right, right, uh, yeah, sort of a larger destination. Yeah. But um, my one kind of fond connection with Russia is Rachmaninoff, who happens to be one of my very favourite uh, classical composers, mm. who of course was Russian, and I think he uh, he, I think he ended his life in America. I believe he moved to America, there. Mm. but uh, he of course grew up in in Russia. 
Anyway, the second piece of follow-up, which I think we should do, is a big hearty thank you to Charlie from A-Town. Yes. I've almost forgotten that the last episode was with him, but uh, have you had a listen to it? Did you did you get a chance to... I actually have. I listened to the whole thing and uh, I, was, I had a huge, huge smile on my face when at the beginning of the episode... He mentions that he was glad that I wasn't on the show with him because apparently, according to him, I have a tendency to be very good at describing products and kind of fueling the lust of materialism. That, <laughs> that, that, that is true. And actually, he's not the only one. As another uh, listener and friend of the show, Peter, who I think since we had that gear episode... He went out and bought an acoustic guitar because oh, really? he's been wanting to learn guitar for a while. Excellent. And so he's been in playing that. And then he sent me a message just last night to say uh, he was, uh, unfortunately, he, he got into a bit of an accident. Oh, no. Which is a shame because he was, uh, he happened to be in a guitar store and he tripped and he, he fell over and uh, he grabbed a guitar to steady himself. But unfortunately, just as he was doing that, his credit card flew out of his pocket and landed in the card reader. Right. And at that point, it was it was too late to do anything about it. He had already, and he is English, so he was a bit embarrassed to say, you know, it was all an accident. So he ended up having right. to buy the second guitar. Oh, okay. Uh, so he's he's actually bought two guitars since we <laughs> since we did the uh, the gear episode. So we're we're having a positive influence on the world. I think. Yeah, that is a that is a tragic freak accident, you know. And I'm sure as he, he sort of rebounded. From the ground, yeah. launched himself up towards the the counter, and his, he went to grab the the card out of the reader, and of course his finger, fingers fumbled on the numbers and kind of accidentally typed in his pin code. Yeah, and that was the end of it. Yeah, yeah, that was you know more or less. I mean, these things happen, you know. I mean, you just got to make do with it, I suppose. If you've got two they guitars, they do. And he was lucky because it was an electric guitar, and the guitar he had previously bought was acoustic. So it didn't end oh, up being lucky. completely redundant. Do you know uh, whether it was a, like what brand or, or type it was, the electric guitar? It was, I think it was a Mitchell. It was, it was not anything particularly, um, you know, super fancy. It was a sort of Mitchell, looked like a Les Paul kind of thing, but slightly more okay. spiky. They do, I think right. they do a bit of a Les Paul looking guitar. So yeah, it was, right. it was a sort of starter. I think the the acoustic he got, I can't remember, he told me, but that was a bit nicer. And this was just because he wanted to sort of get a feel for what electric guitar was like. So Right, right. Okay. Well, all the best to you, Peter. I applaud your single purchase and the freak purchase that ensued. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, we have a lot to talk about. We've got a lot to catch up on. We've been, we've both been traveling all over the globe. Mm, basically, you, you've come here to Europe and I've gone over there to the USA. Right. And a lot of other things have happened in between as well. So I, I would like to um, start, I think, with your trip to Spain because I'm really eager to hear, A, everything about what you did, but also, B, how your Spanish went. And I think all of our listeners who have been subjected to episode after episode of us talking about language learning <laughs> are eager to hear about how you fared with uh, with Spanish. I think if anybody is is bored by the topic of language learning, they've stopped listening by now, so we don't have to worry about it anymore. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. Yeah, so my New Year's resolution, as uh, I mentioned on countless previous shows, it was to improve my Spanish in time for this trip. Right. So I had less time than, a, you know, usually I devote a year to these things, but... I only had nine months for this one. 
And I think the way I phrased it when I set the resolution was that I wanted to be able to have a conversation with just a person I met in a bar without it being sort of awkward and inconvenient for the other person, right? Mm, So it wasn't like a really well-specified thing, but Mm. that was kind of what I was going for, was like not just asking for things in shops, not just sort of doing phrasebook type Spanish, but but an actual conversation. Mm. And I think I'm going to give myself a... I'm going to scrape myself a pass, but only just. Okay. Excellent. I didn't have all that much opportunity to talk in just normal Spanish in normal social environments because I spent most of the holiday with my family. Right. It wasn't just my wife and I, but my parents and my sister, we all went together. Mm. And obviously I grew up there. They have a lot of friends in the area. So we spent quite a lot of time meeting up with with old friends Mm. and socializing with them where their main language was English. So... I didn't get all that much opportunity to just meet Spanish people and and speak with them. Hmm. And I didn't casually meet anybody in any bars. So I was not able to fulfill that part of the obligation. Hmm. The closest I got to a normal conversation that was not directly asking a question, that did go quite well, by the way. There were quite a lot of instances where we would be in a shop and it would just be my wife and I, and she would be asking, you know, does this pair of shoes come in such and such a size or in this different color or whatever? And she would ask me to say those things and I would be able to translate those and and get all that sort of stuff done in Spanish. So I didn't have to resort to English really at any point when I was dealing with staff in shops or in hotels or something like that. So that's good. That's Mm. reassuring, but it's also fairly sort of well-defined category of language. The closest I got to a real conversation was with a taxi driver. Mm. The taxi driver who drove us from our hotel in Granada to the bus station as we were leaving. And that was the the little excursion we made to Granada was just the two of us. And I started up a conversation with him just in general about living in Granada and about how the streets in Granada are so small and winding that it must be quite hard to be a taxi driver in Granada. (laughs) Right, And obviously, that conversation is limited in duration to the length of this fairly short journey to the bus station. And I'm his customer. He is sort of serving me. So he's kind of bound to try and make me happy in a way. Mm. So it's not quite a normal conversation. But still, Mm. it flowed quite nicely. He wasn't in a typical sort of tourist-facing job where he was likely to be able to speak English. So, you know, he just spoke to me in fairly normal Spanish. And I thought that that went quite well. In fact, when I first lived in Japan, I used to do that quite a lot. A lot of the early Mm. conversations I had in Japanese was also with taxi drivers. (laughs) Yeah. Because they're kind of a captive audience. Yeah. (laughs) I think that very much qualifies because uh, taxi drivers, without doubt, are in most countries, taxi drivers are, you know, What's the best way to describe them? They're, they're like kind of street gurus, you know. Right. <laughs> it's their job right. to know everything, and they they kind of they they talk to everybody, and they they they're street wise. They know the layout of the land, right? But they also know what's going on, and they they're kind of like the the a concierge for the entire city, right? <laughs> right. And often they like to talk as well. They just enjoy yeah. having conversations. You know? That's right. And they're always incredibly well. 
uh, at least in my experience, you know, they're, they're always eager to talk, as you said, and they're always friendly and just usually a, a wonderful, wonderful kind of representative for the character of a city. Mm. And I found that in all countries that I've been to, like in, in China and in Japan and in Sweden and in America and in other places in, in Europe that I've been to, you know, all the countries that I've been to, Taxi drivers are just the best people to talk to if you're there on holiday or if mm. you're there temporarily. And as you said, they are kind of like a captive audience because they can't get away from you. And <laughs> you're both stuck in the car together. That's right. But yeah, you can. I think if you had a, if you were able to talk to a taxi driver in Spanish, mm-hmm. that that in my book at least, that definitely qualifies far far better than say a conversation with a drunk person in a bar. Right. Yeah, I mean, well, you know, they both have their merits, but I'm I'm going to call it a pass. And I enjoyed it, and it was good. I feel like I kind of got out of it what I wanted. I'm glad I put the effort in with my Spanish before I went. Mm. One thing that, although, you know, I think I've improved my Spanish quite a lot over this past year, and it was great to be able to use it and, and speak, you know, fairly naturally when the time arose. But one thing my brain was not ready for was translating between Japanese and Spanish. Oh, boy. That was just a complete, like, my wife would say something to me in Japanese, mm. and then sort of I would translate it to Spanish and get the reply. You know, the person in the hotel or whatever it was would, would reply to me in Spanish, and then I would tell her what they'd said in English, mm. and then she would sort of understand that and reply in Japanese. <laughs> and then I would speak to the staff member in Japanese, like right. suddenly, like I've just switched. Right. I'm, I'm, I know I have to switch from one language to another when I switch person, right. but I get confused about which language I have to switch to. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's, it's a, switching languages is a really, really difficult thing to do. Right. I live in a household now where my it's trilingual here now. Mm. So my children speak Swedish to each other and they speak English to me and Japanese to my wife. Oh, wow. Did they, why, why did they start speaking Swedish to each other? That seems like an interesting thing. Did that just happen? Yeah. Or did they, was that like a decision? No, it just happened. So one thing that my wife, I think I've mentioned this before with regard to raising multilingual children, but one thing that my wife and I have always been very adamant about is that we don't ever apply any pressure for any language. Mm. So we just let them say whatever they want in whichever language. You know, mm. We just let them speak. Speaking is more important than saying, you know, or oh, let's have a Swedish day. Right. And we're going to speak only Swedish today. Or, you know, uh, you speak Swedish to her and then you speak English to me. Okay. So we don't apply any pressure like that at all. Mm-hmm. And it just sort of happens naturally, I think, because both of them are in the school system and they spend their whole weekday speaking Swedish. Mm. And yeah, as a result, yeah, I think that they just um, kind of naturally, it it seems to be what comes to them most quickly when they're talking to each other. And I suppose when they're amongst other children, it's usually Swedish. So in terms of kind of making a context switch, because I know you usually, although you don't pressure them to speak any language, you usually speak to them in English and your wife usually speaks to them in Japanese, right? That's right, yeah. And so perhaps sort of they're used to that notion and now when they're with other children they speak in Swedish so it sort of naturally makes sense that they together are children as well so Mm. maybe there is a sort of logic to it that's right so yeah switching languages between uh, two foreign languages for yourself Mm. between your wife and also 
because the um because Japanese has a lot of similarities on the pronunciation with the Mediterranean languages too. Yes. And yeah. so that would also make it kind of easy to slip in Japanese inflections into a Swedish sentence. Yeah. Oh, not Swedish, Spanish. Uh, Spanish I mean, sorry. sentence. Yeah. 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 Especially with like simple questions like for example where mm. is doko in Japanese and donde in Spanish. Uh, which are very okay. sort of similar sounding words and so like Aki would ask me where something was and I would sort of say the wrong thing and oh, it was very right. confusing. <laughs> <laughs> so how's the um how's the weather? Oh the weather was beautiful. The weather was it's funny because you and Chris were here actually where I live during the same period and so I got to see sort of we almost traveled in opposite directions and when he went back he tweeted that he was back in the UK and he was wearing a jumper for the first time in a week and for me it was the opposite I it was much warmer in Spain than it is here and so when I came back here I had to wear trousers for the first time in two weeks right but uh yeah the way it, the places we were we went to really three main areas in Spain, all of which were in southern Spain. We were in Marbella, Granada, and Cordoba. And the weather was beautiful in all three of them. Marbella, because it's on the sea, was a little bit cooler, but also more humid. And Granada and Cordoba were, were both very hot, but you could easily escape the heat by getting into the shade. Mm. So it was perfect and all three cities i've obviously i grew up in marbella and i've been to granada quite a few times so i'm i'm quite familiar with it well a couple of times uh so i i know those cities quite well but they're as i remember them beautiful and amazing you know old cities even marbella is like a fed the old town in marbella still feels like an old sort of andalusian town still got that kind of nice feeling with the pe the cobbled streets and the white buildings and everything and granada uh, we were staying in the albaitin which is the old town sort of region of granada as well and it has these extremely narrow cobbled streets everywhere and these old tea houses because granada still has this great arabic influence from when the moors uh, well owned it you know when it when it was part of their empire hmm. or caliphate so you know, amazing. The one thing that really struck me, though, which I sort of hadn't noticed previously, mm. was the dog poo mm. everywhere. <laughs> <laughs> like they're these beautiful cities, and they've got this amazing atmosphere, and they're old, and the architecture is fantastic. But there's there's like this smell, and and you're thinking. What is that? And they're they're hot. Remember, it's like thirty five degrees or whatever. And and then you you turn a corner and you see a dog poo in the middle of the road. And you remember that the idea of when you take your dog for a walk, doing a pooper scoop and and throwing the the poo away, has not really hit it off in Spain as yet. Uh -huh. It's not really, right. and I seem to remember, like, it's relatively recent for us. Like, I, maybe I'm misremembering, but I sort of think of it as kind of a 90s thing, that that became, like, culturally expected, in the UK at least, that, you know, if you were walking your dog, you had to clean up after it. And that now it's completely standard, and anyone who didn't do that, you'd think they were completely uncouth, right? But in Spain, 
that's just not, I don't think, culturally a thing yet. And I think probably, as was probably the case when it first started being encouraged in the UK, and people sort of laughed at it and said, no, I'm not doing that. I'm not cleaning up after my dog like some servant or, mm. <laughs> or something. I think that's probably the reaction you would get. Mm. And I'd kind of forgotten that I'd, I'd kind of got it in my mind as a settled issue. And I'd forgotten that mm. not everywhere is that the case. And right. it's kind of a shame. I mean, it's <laughs> it makes a big difference. It turns it out. It, I uh, it does. I'm. Um, this is a. It's, it's quite timely that you you mention that because just <laughs> last Monday, mm-hmm. I uh, I went to a shop to pick up my my bike because uh, I needed to have some stuff looked at on and uh, came out of the the shop and I was I stopped on the side of the road to get my helmet on mm. before I'd ride off mm. and uh, uh, kind of smelt something and looked down and realized that I've gotten off my bike and stepped right into a fresh oh, no. fresh pile of the brown stuff. Oh, dear. And um, it was uh, – nothing brings down your day like <laughs> stepping in that. I mean, the thing is that like I'm not, I'm not so – I'm not, you know, particularly obsessive or, you know, uh, about the, the hygiene aspect. Of course, it's, mm. it's dirty and I don't like that. But, you know, I'm not going to be freaking out because I've stepped in dog poo. Mm-hmm. However, it's just such a hassle because, you know, yeah. once I've stepped in that – now when I go to ride my bike, because that's the only way to get home from where I was, right. now it's all over the bike pedal. Yeah. And then, you know, once – and I'm trying to sort of – so I'm furiously trying to like scrape my shoes on the grass to try and get right. it off. Right. But naturally because I'm wearing these, you know, Adidas sneakers that have lots of kind of bumps and ridges on the bottom, it's all kind of, you know, in the in all the gaps. And so I'm out with the twigs trying to, trying to like sort of scrape through the, the gaps. But then I look down at my sleeve and realize that at some stage – Somehow, oh, some no. of the brown stuff had gotten onto my oh, sleeve. No. I was like, oh, just this, mm. this is just you know. So I, I get home, and then of course I don't really want to leave my shoes with the the brown stuff on the bottom of them in our kind of genkan shoe area. No. So no. I'm kind of like carrying them through the house to, out to the back, out <laughs> with the hose, spraying them down. But then I'm realizing that as I'm spraying them down, it's like splashing. All, of, all over myself. <laughs> so it's just like the hygiene isn't so much of a concern for me. It's just such a hassle. Yeah. And so, it, it's just a fundamentally unpleasant thing. I know. <laughs> like nothing brings down your day or your week like having to deal with that situation. Yeah. So. yeah. So, so it's a shame. But not to let that put anybody off visiting Spain. <laughs> it's a wonderful country and, and the places I visited really were amazing. But it struck me it's been a long time since i've been there and i had forgotten that that was a thing mm. but it is <laughs> anyway uh, while while we're on the uh, the on the agricultural side of your your uh, trip experience <laughs> how about the food oh the food the, i mean the food was amazing the uh, mm. obviously i i knew it was going to be amazing going in that's a, a big part of the appeal of spain we ate very well uh, every mm. day we would get up it You'd be amazed how easy it is to get into the Spanish lifestyle. Mm. It's quite different because you get up fairly early, but then you have the siesta in the middle of the day and all the shops are closed. What is fairly early? Are we talking like three or four or, no, or like no, six? No, no. no like, like, well, we would get up at, at I guess, six or seven. Yeah. Okay. Uh, seven-ish, really. And then we, so we would get up, get ready, have a small light breakfast of some fruit 
maybe a little bit of yogurt. Right. But then we would all, my parents and, and my family and I, would go to one of the many cafes that line the, the boardwalk along the beach in Marbella or some of the ones mm. that are further in town. And we would go there for around 11 o'clock, say, 10 or 11, and would have a nice cafe con leche, which literally just means coffee with milk. Okay. But I've never managed to order that coffee anywhere other than Spain. Mm. Like if I get a cafe au lait in France or if I get a latte in, or well, I've never been to Italy, but if I get a latte in Starbucks <laughs> or, or anywhere else um, or a cappuccino or anything, they're very different. And I don't know exactly what the proportion is. I presume that the Spanish coffee is espresso based. Mm. So I presume it's espresso and some portion of milk, maybe half and half. I'm not sure. There's no foam. Right. It's just, you know, coffee with milk. But it's really good. I usually have my coffee black, mm. but I really like the, the Café Con Leche in Spain. Mm. So I'd have that every morning and then would have it with churros, which you may have... Have you? Are you familiar with churros? No. So churros are a, a sort of Spanish sweet snack. Mm. And I think they're fairly common in, in Latin America as well. And so you see them a lot in America and you also see them quite a bit in Japan. They'll quite often serve them in in cinemas and places like that in America and Japan. Mm. But the kind they have is different. There's there's like two varieties of churro. There's the ones that you usually see in America or Japan, which I presume have come from sort of Latin America, although they're, they're quite common in Spain as well. But those are sort of a bit harder and they've got this sort of star shape. So I should probably... Before I get into the details of the two different kinds, I should explain that churros themselves are kind of, they're described as, as battered fritters. They're essentially just like deep fried sort of batter mix, essentially. I see. I'm just going to show you a, a picture just so we're on the same page. Sounds very healthy. It is not. <laughs> <laughs> it's like deep fried lard with sprinklings of sugar and oil. Okay, Fr yeah. Fried I see. pastry. Right, you got it? So. Yeah. And the picture on that Wikipedia page is the sort of what most people probably think of when they think of a, a churro, a standard sort of star-shaped, reasonably hard version. Hmm. But if you scroll further down on the the Wikipedia page that I linked you, you'll see that there are two photos next to each other. And the second one, they've given them a different name. They, they call them tejeringos or calentitos, which they say is an Andalusian variation of the churro. Hmm. That's that's the kind that was more common where we were. I see. And that kind feels a little bit lighter, but you also have to have it fresh, like fresh out of the fryer, because it would go disgusting quickly, right? Because it's quite mm. oily. The other kind you can sort of make and store and heat up and, and serve again, right? But with these ones, it would that would not be nice. So we would have these fresh churros, with sugar and coffee in the cafe at about 11 o'clock. And then, you know, we'd go for a bit of a wander around and do something, maybe do some shopping, and then come back for our siesta at about... Well, we'd have lunch somewhere, or sometimes at home somewhere, out, sometimes out somewhere. Mm. And then we'd come home, and all the shops close between, like, two or three in the afternoon and about five or so in the evening, right? Mm. And that's that's when the 
siesta is. Spain is kind of famous for its siestas, right? But right. a lot of people, since I came back, were asking me, is that like really a thing? Do they actually do that? Right. And they do. So the whole day is kind of structured very differently from ours. And the, the standard working day... I think this is true across most of Spain, and I'm I'm pretty sure this is true, like in most professions and in office jobs and things as well. Mm. But if there are any Spanish listeners who who are correcting me and saying that, that this isn't true anymore, please please write into the Reddit. But certainly, in terms of what everyone seemed to be doing in Marbella and the shops closing up and everything, it seemed to be very much alive and well. Mm. People would close up their shop at like two in the afternoon or whatever have their lunch, perhaps have, I mean, usually, traditionally, you have a nap during that time, mm. and then go back to work at like four or five, mm. and then work until eight. So the working day is longer, but it's got this large, long lunch in the middle so that you can sleep. So the siesta with, with people closing shops, mm. I'd known that because uh, when I went to Spain when I was like 10, I think, mm. was the one time I've been to Spain. Uh, I observed that as well. Mm -hmm. One thing, though, that uh, I'm curious about is do people actually sleep or do they just sort of relax and kick back and so I'm, have a nice... I'm not sure exactly about the logistics of this for sort of normal people going through their everyday lives because right. I'm trying to think like if I was working like an office job like I am now where I have a little bit of a commute to get there you know by the time I've got home and then gone to bed and then I've got to get up and get ready and drive back into work like you'd lose quite a lot of time just commuting and getting ready and and all of that that's right so it seems like it would be inconvenient to actually sleep during that time. Yeah. We certainly did. So we we would go home and we didn't even, we weren't trying to. This was just a thing that naturally happened. Like we'd be out doing things and because it's very hot, right? So you get exhausted quite quickly. So we'd be out doing things and then we'd eat a fairly large lunch. And I think that in Spain, it's more common for lunch to be the main biggest meal of the day rather than supper. Mm. Uh, so we'd have this lunch and then we'd go home and we'd, you know, we'd have plans for the evening. And we just naturally, that was just the thing we did. We went to sleep and then we'd get up and shower at about five or six in the evening. Right. And then go out and have the second, the whole second half of our day, really. So our day was split into two mm. in that way. Obviously, we were tourists and that's maybe a little bit different from people who are working in, in like an office job or whatever or working in a shop. So I'm not really sure. I'd be interested to hear from anybody who actually, you know, is is living there and, and see how common it is. But it worked. It was nice for us, A, because it was just a nice, relaxing way to structure the day, right? Mm. And we'd be refreshed when we woke up at five or six and had our shower and we'd have, you know, the whole second half of the day ahead of us where we've got a nice meal and we'd go out until late in the evening we could go out much later because we knew we were going to get this mid-afternoon snack, so uh, mid-afternoon nap. So we didn't have to sleep as many hours overnight. And it was good for jet lag as well. That was going to be my question, actually. It's like, how did it affect your jet lag? Yeah, well, so one thing to say is that we actually went to England for a few days before we went to Spain. Oh, okay. We spent a few days in England living the English life, which does not involve a siesta. And the jet lag was actually pretty bad for those couple of days. But by the time we went to Spain, we'd more or less adjusted to the time zone. Mm. So it's not really a fair test. 
But I think whatever was left of the jet lag, I feel like we just didn't suffer from it at all. And I think it would be good for jet lag. Mm. Like, because it, because it makes sense, right? When you're jet lagged, especially going from America to Europe, three or four in the afternoon is exactly the time you start to feel tired, right? Right, right. And so if you can sleep then and then sleep again in the evening, you never really have to adjust. Like, it just feels like a natural thing to do. Yeah, I think, I don't know how I would go with that because generally I... Uh... I find it very difficult to sleep during the day generally. Mm. Uh, like a siesta in general, I don't think would be would, would work too well with me. And surely there are other people like me as well. So I yeah, guess there are... Uh... Maybe, but I mean, I don't, I don't tend to sleep during the day here. Mm. But it just, I don't know, very, very naturally happens. Some combination of the heat and the food and the fact that everyone else was doing it. Mm. Just felt very tired and I went to sleep without even really thinking about it. So mm. I definitely recommend giving it a go. But... You kind of have to be there, right? Well, that sounds great. Um, did you catch any good movies on the on your flights over there or on the way back? Oh, uh, we watched Ready Player One, mm-hmm. which was all right, I suppose. <laughs> Actually, uh, I uh, <laughs> I watched that too on the way to San Jose. Oh, uh, did you? And um, I mean, I've I've spent the last five years of my career developing for VR, mm-hmm. and so I went into it with with the with a strong, determined objective to not be cynical. <laughs> it's just just take it as it is. You know, it's entertainment. You know, mm-hmm. it's and I have to say that it took me about ten minutes before I just couldn't couldn't hold it back anymore. <laughs> and it's like, no, sorry, Stephen. You know, mate, this is not going to work. <laughs> you know, it's just, I thought that actually, as a movie, yeah, you know, it's a good sort of harmless Steven Spielberg kind of movie. Yep. he's very, very good at making movies. You know, whether you like them or not, you know, mm-hmm. you have to, you, you can't deny that Steven Spielberg is very, very good at making movies. But yeah, it's all just a bit kind of silly, really. <laughs> the whole thing. I mean, that, that's not entirely his fault because it was a book before. It was uh, a movie right. Okay. And, you know, the book I think is is very similar. It's kind of too much. Like it's, it seems like. There's a certain type of geek, right? Which I think I used to be, mm. but no longer feel like I am. Which is the kind that gets excited just by the very mention of the thing that they like. Right, right. So if the thing that you like, the hobby or the anime or whatever it is, gets mentioned in some sort of unrelated context, right. That will set you off. And there's a reference to it. Mm. Then you're like, oh, I know what that is. And I get that reference. And I'm Christ. in the group that understands that reference. And that makes me special, kind of. Right, right. That, that kind of feeling. Right. And I'm not saying there's anything wrong with that. But that is a class of sort of interest that exists. Right. And I think this movie was like made to... Well, this movie in the book was, was made for those kind of people. And it's also about one of those kinds of people, right? I mean, the main right. sort of guy who created this whole virtual world right he created it this isn't a spoiler it's sort of the, pr- the premise of the whole movie but mm. the whole idea is that he created it to be full of these references to the things he liked when he was growing up mm. to the extent that he built this massive sort of museum of all of his memories that the inhabitants of this place could go to find out more about his favorite things that he would be making references to right so it's you know, he was that character was exactly that sort of person, mm. and it's very. I, I, so I don't think it's a, a sort of mistake 
that the story is structured like that. I think it's it's about and for those kinds of people. Mm. But for me, it just felt excessive because like all these constant references, and I tend to find the concept of a reference generally to be a bit banal. <laughs> right. <laughs> there's there's another podcast that I listen to where whenever there's a reference, some sort of cultural reference to pop culture or something, mm. it's like a thing that somebody sort of points out, that's a reference. Right. And it drives me up the wall a little bit. Like mm. <laughs> I'm just every time I hear that, I'm just like, I don't care. <laughs> you know, I like I like the podcast and I like the people and all that. But like that that thing is like it's just not for me. It's some people like it and that's great, but it's it's not my thing. So yeah, I've remembered what the other movie I saw that I wanted to see was though on the plane, which yep. I don't know why I didn't it didn't occur to me first because it's the one that I actually cared about. Solo. Ah, I finally right. saw it. Have you seen that? Did you see it? I watched it on the plane too. Oh, well, we, we had a very similar plane journey. Yeah, I think, we were you on British Airways? Yes. Well, there you go. That's there why we, <laughs> we, yeah. we had exactly the same, uh, exactly the same selections of movies, because I was right. as well. So right. I don't think we will... Um, no, let's, maybe let's we can... leave, that, leave that for another time or never. <laughs> yeah, but uh, yeah, I, yeah I was, it was enjoyable. I, I liked I, it. Um, I thought mm. it was good. I, I uh, have no real sort of feelings either way about it. You know, I, a little bit forgettable, I guess, but it's just sort of, yeah, you know, it's good, good value. Yeah, <laughs> I suppose. As, as you're famous for saying. Yeah, nothing, nothing really, unlike uh, the other previous Star Wars movies that we've talked about, which kind of are either very good or very, very not good. Although we haven't really talked about the not ever good expressed ones. an opinion yeah. of ones that are, are very not good. But uh, this one was just sort of, yeah, okay, great, sure, that'll do. <laughs> yeah, that does it. <laughs> Nothing really to sort of get really, really excited about for me personally, but yeah, it, yeah, it was there yeah. and it was, um, it was, it was right. a good, good, fun movie. Well constructed, mm. well done, very nice. Jobs are good and right. Except for uh, this isn't a spoiler, and if you consider this a, spo- a spoiler, then you probably shouldn't see the movie anyway. Except for the scene where Han is talking in Wookiees. Oh, did you not like that? I heard some people didn't like that. I liked it. Yeah, it was just a bit. It was yeah. No, no I thought I it was go good. <laughs> it, it, I thought it. It sort of explained the the fact that he can understand it. The fact that he's he's understood it in all all the other movies, which has gone unexplained. Maybe some people right. didn't like that. I liked that they didn't overdo it. Like mm. he, it was one scene, and then it was over. Right. Right. I thought um, uh, Woody Harrelson's performance, his character and his performance was was really good. I really liked him. I mm-hmm. mm-hmm. uh, haven't seen him for, in a movie for a long time, actually, come to think of it. Mm-hmm. So, um, while you were in Spain, actually, the very day that you left to go to Spain, I think the next day, I think it was, was the very, other way very around. close. It was, oh. it was the end of my trip. So, Oh, that's right. The day, the day that I got back from Spain was the day that you left. That's right. Okay. Yeah, that's it. I went to San Jose yes. for the uh, Oculus Connect event. Which, which, when we were planning our trip to Spain, I had no idea was on. And I kind of right. wish we could have just skirted it because it would have been nice to see you. It's a bit funny that we ended up flying and, and almost swapping places. Right, right. So, yeah, I mean, to begin with... Um, You know, no trip to California is complete without at least two hours waiting in customs at San Francisco Airport. You should have flown to San Jose. 
don't have to do any of that. Yeah, true. Uh, <laughs> I thought that that was an option, but a more expensive option. Yeah, so yeah, we decided to go to uh, straight to San Francisco. And I, being the master of all logistics that I am not, mm. I uh, managed to schedule uh, my colleague Chris and my plane to arrive at exactly the same time on different runways at San Francisco Airport. So <laughs> we actually uh, we actually found each other in said customs line. Oh, where nice. We waited for two hours at San Francisco <laughs> Airport, so that was nice. Uh, although he was in a different place in the line than I was. Mm. And uh, so, yeah, we got on the Cal train. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting... It's interesting how America American vehicle design finds this necessity to make look make their vehicles look so aggressive. Yeah. And uh, this is it's it's yeah, like the even the the BART train which is sort of this old antiquated subway system with 1980s platform voice synthesis announcement <laughs> technology which is very odd from, you know, a city that makes Silicon things Valley. like you know, Siri and, and stuff like that with such incredible voice synthesis. We have the basically the Commodore Amiga Say running <laughs> on, the, uh, on the platforms of the BART. But anyway, the, the trains themselves kind of look like this weird, uh, kind of like a, a Sid Mead. Do you know who Sid Mead is? Oh, yes, of course. Yeah, yeah. kind of like a Sid Median utopian train, except the fact that it's really, really dirty and extremely noisy. Mm. But the Caltrain... You know, it's uh, kind of like something you'd expect to see in a Mad Max movie. You know, it's like this yeah. big, hulking, massive, noisy, grinding thing with spikes. And it's, <laughs> yeah, I mean, I have a, a lot of opinions on the on the Caltrain. <laughs> right. The the look of it is is one thing. I mean, it's two stories, so it's right. it's going to be big, right? Right, right. But it is so loud mm. and quite slow right and very noisy but both in terms of like the noise of it rattling on the tracks themselves which is a bit disconcerting and the feeling of it sort of shaking back and forth as it moves Uh, and the horn as well like the the sort of that they do as it it goes past any city or anything is also just crazy loud right yeah it's the 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 rattling was like the the shaking from side to side was actually quite surprising. It was like, mm. wow, you know, something this huge and this heavy consisting of whatever it was like six carriages or whatever it was right, can right. shake left and right that much. Right. Inside, you know, on the outside, like I said, it looks like a kind of a, a post-nuclear oil wars you know, <laughs> uh, sort of kind of battle train with spikes and cannons and, right. and stuff like that. And on the inside... It res- it very much resembles uh, like the stereotypical science fiction movie dropship. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, you know, in science fiction movies, the, the, there's there's often this idea of the dropship where they'll have like uh, it'll be like this uh, hovering a hovering aircraft which drops these platoons of sci-fi soldiers down into the battlefield and they're kind of suspended by their shoulders and the, mm. the floor opens up and they drop down. I think because upstairs, on the upstairs, you have basically single rows of seats, basically uh, on... On either side, right? Yeah, they're like a gallery looking down on the, the downstairs bit. Yeah. Exactly. So it was kind of, uh, yeah, kind of kind of bizarre. Anyway, yeah. so... It's weird. And, and it's shaking so much and being so loud that you think, oh, this train's working really hard. It must be going quite quickly. 
But no, <laughs> no, <laughs> it'd be quicker to drive. <laughs> Quick, quicker to walk, I think. But the, the, the funny thing is, is that like the BART train, the Caltrain also has tinted windows, mm. so shaded windows. Mm. So when you're inside the Caltrain, mm. as with the BART, you get this idea that outside the weather is really bad. It, kind of, <laughs> it looks sort of cloudy and dark outside when, right. when you actually step out of the train. It's like really bright and sunny. <laughs> so everything about the whole experience is just very heavy and aggressive and dark and industrial, mm. which I think I can also probably say for most American car design as well. It's all very industrial and heavy and kind of masculine. Right. So um, one of my um, good friends who I visited in San Francisco uh, he has recently purchased for himself a Tesla. Mm. Uh, and even the Tesla, which is, you know, kind of like hyper future cutting edge. Well, which Tesla? Uh, the really, really, really expensive one. That doesn't one narrow the, it down. Okay. <laughs> the one with the uh, the gull wing back doors. Right. The the Model X, right? Yeah. I, th- I suspected that you were going to say that because that is the one that is big and hulking and masculine looking. Right. The others aren't. I mean, I think the Model S is actually fairly sleek. But if you look at the sleek, yes, but if you look at the like the the profile of the face of the car, mm. you know, you are basically looking at like some kind of, you know, chaotic evil puma. <laughs> <laughs> it's, whereas you compare it to like, you know, your bog standard average Japanese car from uh, you know a big manufacturer like Nissan or Toyota, mm. and they're much more kind of approachable and friendly looking. But anyway, <laughs> I digress. So we um, uh, San Jose. Uh, unfortunately, we didn't have much time to do anything else in San Jose other than you walk. From... You didn't get any time to enjoy any of San Jose's greater than zero attractions. No, we didn't. So <laughs> those who uh, follow me on Twitter will remember that. Uh, I uh, had an automated email from Booking.com that said, while you're in San Jose, enjoy all of its zero attractions. And, I'll put uh, a link in some- the show notes. Yeah, it was some- something. I get the wording wrong, but uh, <laughs> somebody uh, somebody kind of got the field wrong there. <laughs> no, to put the d- no, I think they're about right. <laughs> <laughs> so we basically uh, we stayed in a, a motel. Which was fine. It was great. You know, it was very, uh, it was very clean, and the staff were extremely friendly. And uh, mm-hmm. it was, um, uh, it, it looked the the picture of the '90s action movie motel. Mm. You know, you go in there. There's like this archway, and you go in there, and there's kind of like two floors of uh, these motel rooms, kind mm. of looking down at you in this sort mm. of you're you're inside this sort of courtyard of. Yeah. Uh, Motel's looking down at you, and it looks exactly like you know something from Terminator or, or something like that. Anyway, yeah, it's funny. I, th- I think about that because people watching Terminator who are from here probably just see that as a normal setting. Whereas right. I know exactly what you mean. The first time I saw one of those motels in America, I was like, "Oh, it's just like in the movies." Right. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. So yeah, it was very nice. Um, uh, San Jose. The weather was just weird. Mm. It was like kind of it was very cold in the morning, kind of between around ten maybe mm. uh, in the morning, and a bit foggy. Would ri- would uh, uh, rise to something like thirty at the, yeah. the the hottest point of the day in the mm-hmm. afternoon. Thirty is like what's that? A hundred and I usually make jokes about Fahrenheit, but I'm not going to this time. Okay, it's like a hundred and five. Ninety eight is thirty six. 
So okay. 30 is like high 80s, early okay, 90s, low 90s, I think. Thank you. And uh, then it will sort of get very cold in the evening again. Mm-hmm. So it was very difficult to know what to wear. Mm-hmm. Anyway, yeah, so basically motel to the McEmory Convention Center, mm-hmm. uh, which was a convenient three-minute walk away. Yeah. And, yeah, we enjoyed uh, basically uh, this is Facebook. Facebook owns Oculus. Mm-hmm. And Oculus, for those who don't know, is one of the main players in the um, hardware side of uh, virtual reality entertainment, the VR entertainment. Mm. And basically, uh, yeah, the uh, the event was really good. Facebook has uh, a lot of money, and so <laughs> it was very um, opulent. You know, the, there mm. was kind of food was being sort of constantly served in the halls outside the, the lecture rooms and stuff, like all day, mm-hmm. uh, and good food as well. Like not, not um, yeah, quite high-quality event food you know it wasn't just mm. sort of snacks and stuff like that it was like fruit and in the morning they had um uh burritos of various different kinds and croissants and baked bread and the lunches were uh these sort of lunchbox bentor style lunchbox things with different choices for what kind of topping you wanted on your rice or pasta or things like that and all kinds of options for vegans and vegetarians and and uh, you know gluten-free options and it was yeah really Great. Now, is this more of a, a sort of exhibition type thing like E3 or TGS, or was it more of a GDC type giving lectures to each other and talking about techniques and stuff? Yeah, so this is wholly GDC style. So it's okay. entirely focused towards developers and industry people mm. uh, and not to consumers. Okay, interesting. Yeah, so uh, Mark Zuckerberg got up there up on stage during the uh, keynote presentation uh-huh. and uh, presented the audience with uh, Oculus's new product, which is called the Quest, uh-huh. uh, which will be coming out um, in uh, spring next year, I believe. Exciting. And yeah, it was really, really great. I think what was really nice, I'm not going to go too far off uh, into... Uh, uh, into a discussion about the VR industry right now. But mm-hmm. the what was really nice was just to have this good sense of positivity about it all, I think. Mm. Just as a quick summary there, you know, VR has suffered a little bit in that uh, I think that people's hopes for its potential kind of raced a little bit f- too far forward before the technology had time to keep up. Right. Yeah. And as a result, there was a lot of hype and a lot of excitement about what VR could be and its potential and all of that mm-hmm. before there was the hardware that could deal to do that or good enough software to achieve that mm-hmm. um, or wide enough kind of install base of users to actually validate some of these ideas that people had for it. Mm-hmm. Um, so now we, we, I think last year you could probably say it was sort of the what is that called? The the Valley of Disillusionment? Is that right? <laughs> is that? Uh, uh, I'm not familiar with that phrase, but sounds. What is that? When when you the reason it's a valley is because you become disillusioned for a bit, but then things actually turn good again. Is that the idea? Yeah, that's right. I think yeah. that the other way to describe it is that new technology op- often follows like a, a horizontal S curve, mm. well, horizontal and mirrored S curve, where you know there's a lot of excitement about the potential and a lot of money and investment and kind of mm. hopes for the future, mm. then you'll come over this crest down into mm. a, a valley where I, something will not have gone according to plan. Mm. 
where, it, like I said, in the case of VR, it was uh, just a little bit too much too soon. Right, right. Uh, and then there'll be a slow kind of crawling out of that, hopefully after that, to a, a positive and more consistent, stable mm. kind of growth into the future. And that's really the point that we are at right now with VR, and that was very positive to feel that. Mm. That we've had this kind of disappointment that, okay, writing, making games and entertainment and experiences for VR is harder than we thought. Mm. There are less people with devices than we thought. The technology wasn't as good as we was hoping it would be. Mm. However, now you really get the sense that ah, okay, so this is what we've been waiting for. You this know, is now leading. Yeah, yeah, this is where it's leading to, and and now we're getting very, very close to the kind of ideal that people had so many years ago for what this you know could be when it reaches its potential. And you really got the sense that we're we're getting there now. Mm. So that was really, really great to experience that. And like like uh, my colleague Chris and I said to each other frequently, if there's anything that American business people do really well, mm -hmm. it's positivity. Yes, that is that is one of the things that everyone who sort of lives here, who's come here from certainly from the UK and also often from Japan as well, point out is that mm. there's there's generally a much more positive less cynical attitude right right i mean i know that we can't generalize for europe but one thing i can definitely say about australia and the united kingdom mm. is that things are kind of rubbish until they're proven not to be mm. whereas <laughs> in in the united states it seems like things are awesome until they're proven not to be right right <laughs> so like everything by default is fantastic right uh, right until you realize that it isn't and i think that um yeah, we definitely got a sense for that, you know, just the enthusiasm and the positivity and the optimism mm. about the future of VR and this new technology mm. and our our uh, part, the part that each one of us play as developers in, in you know, bringing this technology to the mainstream. Mm. It was really, really good for Chris and myself to experience that. Oh, that's good. So after San Jose, we boarded uh, the, um, uh, the spiky, aggressive post-nuclear oil wars battle train yeah and rode up to san francisco very nice and in san francisco we uh spent actually very little time in san francisco itself mm -hmm. well you've been a few times now as well with gdc right yeah i mean this must be my i don't know eighth or ninth time to san right. francisco i think right. and we uh spent the the weekend with my old friend actually two of my old friends mm -hmm. which was just fantastic and then got to ride in the tesla He's very, my friend is very, uh, we grew up together. He, he's mm. also from Adelaide and we went to high mm. school together. Uh, and he is still now one of my very best friends. And, uh, mm. he's very Adelaide about the whole Tesla thing, mm -hmm. which means that, you know, all of the funny kind of amazing little bits and pieces of technology that have gone into the design <laughs> of the Tesla, mm. he just laughs at it. You know, it's just like. <laughs> Of all the things that this amazing company could be doing to help out the world, my car does this. You know, it's like, <laughs> you know just the, all the little. I mean, I don't. This is not an advertisement for Tesla because everybody knows the amazing things that Teslas do. But it's just kind of like, yeah, yeah. You know, uh, we were driving down the highway at uh, very, very fast speeds, and he's just sort of, you know, driving with his his uh, hands clasped behind his head like he's sort of he's got his, his seat tilted back it's like he's lying in some kind of resort hammock or something as his car's <laughs> driving itself and uh all the other i've forgotten them now but all like these ridiculous little sort of fine touches and details and it's just mm -hmm. like you know this is just yeah tesla anyway 
my colleague Chris got to experience the Folsom Street Fair, I believe it's called, which um, listeners may or may not know is the, I need to get the, just let me check here, the, the, there it is. Folsom Street Fair is an annual BDSM and leather subculture street uh, fair yeah, yeah. held in September that caps San Francisco's Leather Pride Week. I've got a friend who used to live on, I think, on Folsom Street, or certainly very near it. Right. So it was, that was on his doorstep every year. <laughs> right. He's definitely seen it a few times. Yeah, it, it was funny because when I on that day I didn't join uh, Chris for that excursion. I was with my my other friend with his Tesla, and uh, mm-hmm. um, when I came back to see Chris in the evening, mm. he was kind of like a little numb looking, sort of lying in the sofa, <laughs> very exhausted. And <laughs> you know, it, it it was kind of like the final scene of of Blade Runner, where he's got like. <laughs> rain washing down his face and he's saying i've seen things that you people wouldn't believe (laughs) he said that uh, i think his comment that summarized it up very nicely was that for an event that's largely centered around sex Mm -hmm. it was a remarkably unsexy event (laughs) (laughs) so yes anyway it's also all supposed to be about sort of individuality and freedom and all that but like everyone is wearing basically the same leather nothing get ups like (laughs) (laughs) right um so uh yeah and then we um uh enjoyed a bit more time in san francisco to meet some other friends before we got on the plane and uh headed back to heathrow Mm -hmm. and we had uh, about uh, three or four hours waiting for our respective flights to uh, where Chris is in Scotland and, and here in Stockholm. Mm-hmm. So we enjoyed just kind of people watching in Heathrow. Heathrow is pretty good as far as kind of diversity and internationalism goes. Mm. It is a, a major hub. Yeah. I mean, it's one of the largest airports in the world. Mm. But it is it does not compare at all to Dubai Airport. Have you ever been to Dubai? Oh, yes. Yes. Dubai Dubai is an amazing sort of experience dubai is sensational i I highly recommend anybody i've never actually been out of the airport in dubai No, neither have i (laughs) right but i highly recommend anybody uh who has the option to go you know uh via dubai airport definitely do it because it is it is literally like the scene out of a, a kind of utopian futuristic science fiction movie where you have kind of token representations of every single ethnicity Mm. (laughs) you've got asian people and you've got uh you know european caucasian people you've got african people you've got i mean you know south american people you've got you know uh, oceanic people from australia and new zealand and pacific it's just like my god and everybody kind of yeah it's just it's amazing it's so multicultural and it's funny because so many of them are, are sort of on their way to somewhere else right right so, I mean, Heathrow uh, was, was quite good in this regard. But, yeah, just, you know, Chris and I were saying as we were watching some people walking past saying that, you know, uh, this, this is good. But uh, really, if you want internet, like pure, like uh, intense internationalism, then definitely Dubai <laughs> Airport is the experience you want. Which terminal were you at, at Heathrow? Uh, we were in, let's see, which is the five. new one? Yeah, five, I think, which I think is right. for shareways. So it would have been five. Yeah, which is where we were as well because we were also British Airways, and it was, I think it was our first time at Terminal Five. Very nice. Yeah, yeah, very nice. I've been there several times and had uh, several opportunities to like use up many hours walking around there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, very good. I have to commend Heathrow on its efficiency. I mean, I guess 
many people listening who've had trouble at Heathrow are probably, you know, balking right now. But <laughs> I think when you factor in the fact that when you factor in this the size of the airport and the fact that there's something ridiculous like, you know, one plane landing every five minutes or something like that, mm-hmm. the the sort of uh, throughput of people mm-hmm. going through that airport is is so high. So, of course, they need to be devising systems to make sure things are moving relatively, uh, moving as efficiently as possible, especially mm. at bottlenecks like checking counters and and security, of course, mm. and very efficient. Yeah, it was it was uh, yeah it was just kind of like a smooth glide straight through. We didn't really have to wait very long, unlike. Mm. Uh, other airports in the United States, which I mentioned yeah. earlier, it was just all very, uh, very efficient well, and smooth. So we did. My my wife actually had to wait for over an hour, I think, at customs. So um, oh, okay, curb your enthusiasm very slightly there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but uh, yeah, so that was our trip. Um, one thing I I did wanted to to mention with, with regard to jet lag. Mm. So what is your uh, what's your general strategy for dealing with jet lag? Uh, so, well, this went a bit differently this time, but we basically trying to get a flight. So the flight that we got to the UK from here left in the evening and arrived in the sort of early afternoon. So right. we left at like eight in the evening and arrived at like two in the afternoon. Right. And the flight that we got on the way back left in the early afternoon and arrived in in the evening it was almost like the reverse Mm. and both of those are quite good i think like the one that left the one on the way there left in the evening arrived in the early afternoon so we slept a little bit on the flight not that well obviously because i never sleep very well on the flight and then usually we just try and push through to the evening to sleep at a normal time right that evening Mm. and if we can do that a couple of days in a row then then we're fine. Right. We've also been, the last couple of trips we've taken, we've taken this, uh, I think it's melatonin. Yeah. Which is like a supplement to help your body sort of adjust. And we found that's been fairly effective. Mm. Uh, but I had a bit of a problem this time, which was that on the first night we were in the UK, I developed a headache. Oh, okay. Which started at about six in the evening and just didn't go away was it dehydration i'm not sure exactly what it was i do sometimes get headaches mm. they were really ladling out the wine on the flight as well so that probably <laughs> didn't help right but <laughs> anyway for for whatever reason i got this headache and so my usual technique of like pushing myself to stay up and then falling asleep didn't work because i couldn't fall asleep because i had a headache mm. And then I ended up just sort of suffering through the night until about six in the morning when the Tesco down the road opened and I went and bought some paracetamol. Mm. So I had this headache for like 12 hours. Oh, wow. And that that totally threw me for the next few days then because not only had I had this bad night's sleep on the plane, I had another bad night's sleep afterwards. Right. And there was the jet lag to contend with. So Mm. I did not have a very good first few days in the UK. No, that's a shame. How about you? Our our experience is uh, is was the same, but for different reasons actually. So, my strategy for dealing with jet lag, which has worked without fail mm. up till this trip, is exactly the same as yours. So basically, I will I can never sleep on planes, so I intentionally mm-hmm. don't try. Mm-hmm. So I basically um, load up a whole range of movies and just kind of push through the the flight, just watching movies the whole time. 
mm-hmm. and get to wherever I'm going really, really exhausted after one and a half days without sleep. And then, yeah, basically um, force myself to stay awake until like, you know, 9 or 10 p.m. or like a, a, a fairly normal sleeping hour and then mm. usually sleep quite well mm. and then wake up the next next morning sort of more or less reset to the mm. – maybe sometimes a bit earlier I'll wake up but, you know, more mm. or less reset to where I am ready to go. Mm. And that has worked without fail up till this trip. And I was trying to figure out why it was that this trip I was actually quite badly jet-lagged when we got to – uh, the USA, mm-hmm. you know, each day I uh, would sleep. We like the first night, go to bed at like 10 p.m., woke up at like midnight, mm-hmm. <laughs> and then and then kind of lying there looking at the ceiling yeah. until you know four, yeah. and then uh, sleep, slept a little bit, and then get up at six, kind yeah. of like that. Yeah, yeah. And that that went on for like three or four days, like real classic jet lag. Mm-hmm. And I'm trying to figure out what it is that actually caused that why mm. this trip is different and I, I know what it is now. And mm-hmm. it's something really, really kind of kind of positive but kind of unusual as well. Okay. I might not have mentioned it to you, but since uh, June this year, mm-hmm. I've actually been going to the gym every morning. Oh, right. Oh, yeah. okay. And Very good. next to my son's school is a really good sports gym. And mm-hmm. in June, you know, I'm getting up there as far as the age goes and I – I'm uh, quite conscious of cardiovascular health mm-hmm. uh, because my, my parents have both had uh, different kinds of cardiac uh, conditions previously. So mm-hmm. uh, I thought, well, now's the time. I used to do quite a lot of uh, – I used to do sort of weights and stuff in uh, high school and university mm-hmm. uh, a little bit, but not just you know free weights and stuff at home, but nothing really intense. But I had a fair bit of knowledge that I built up then from uh, about – how to do weight training. Mm. But from June, I've, I signed up to this gym and it's a very good gym. And because I take my son to school in the morning mm. on a bike, it's really convenient for me to just go to the gym every morning. Mm. So since June, I've been doing that every day, five days a week, which has been fantastic for my health and in many, many aspects as well. Like I've gone down two inches on my pants size, mm. <laughs> which is great. But also, uh, it's give, if, if for some reason, it really helps concentrate through the day when you have a fairly intense workout every morning. Mm. I tend to sort of, I don't know, I, I just sort of seem to be able to concentrate much better and i getting quite a lot of work done and then I look at the time and see, oh, it's only 2 p.m. Oh, great. I've got yeah. like three more hours. A lot of people say that. Yeah. So that's been really, really good. But what I think has happened this time with this trip is that because of basically being much healthier than previously – Mm. I have a lot more stamina now. Mm. And so basically it, it would need to be more than one and a half to two days awake on an airplane in travel <laughs> to make me tired enough to sleep in a different time zone. Mm. So this time when I got there, I basically was not as exhausted as I was previously before <laughs> I started this regime. I see. And so that's the reason why I, I kind of not because I'm not so tired and sleep very much. But then the body clock didn't have a chance to reset, which meant I mm-hmm. kind of got locked into this cycle of jet lag very quickly. Oh. Well, so I guess the moral of the story is don't exercise and live like a slob. That, I think, is a good philosophy, yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, the uh, the trip to uh, the US was uh, was definitely a success and uh, it was very enjoyable. The uh, uh, everything Everything went well and everything was good, so, yeah. We uh, oh, good. had a good time. Well, well done. And have you made another trip recently? I have. So um, uh, last week, at the start of last week, I actually uh, took the um, Swedish overland train to Gothenburg. Oh. 
um, Gothenburg is the second largest city in Sweden. Mm. That is with a population, I think, of something around 800,000. Mm. So second largest 800,000. You know, Sweden only has like eight, nine million people. So, mm-hmm. And I think like two to three million of those people are in Stockholm. Okay. Anyway, Gothenburg um, is right on the west side of Sweden. Mm-hmm. And it's a coastal city from which you have Denmark and Norway across the water, basically. Right. And if you kind of go straight directly west from Gothenburg, you you more or less come to Scotland. Oh, I see. Oh, okay. So it's in line. I think, I believe so, uh, because what I learned from my guide in Gothenburg, which was very fascinating, was actually Gothenburg is basically a uh, city that's built by essentially Vikings and Scottish fishermen. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah. Scottish fishermen from Glasgow. Mm. And from this Glasgow, is, from the other yeah, side. That's right. So yeah. uh, I had to consult with my uh, esteemed Scottish representative colleague, Chris, <laughs> who is actually from near Glasgow, mm-hmm. why it is uh, that because you would expect that Edinburgh is the one that's on the mouth, it is closer to the, to the, to the east. eastern side of yeah. Scotland. And therefore, that would be the place that you'd expect people to kind of go travel across to scandinavia and gothenburg from Mm -hmm. but according to chris glasgow is the one with the boat making tradition and heritage and industry. oh yeah no that's true yeah and it does make sense yeah i don't i think he mentioned that you can't actually sail a boat from glasgow to edinburgh so you wouldn't be sailing from glasgow glasgow east through edinburgh you'd have to go around so you'd actually have to go around the top of scotland yeah and then down uh, down past Norway and then into that, um, what is the Baltic Sea? Is that it there? Let's just leave that aside. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Regular listeners will, will know that, uh, yes, on Station 13, we, we know a lot about a lot of things, but geography is definitely uh, not, our, not our strong point. Anyway, yeah. So actually a lot of uh, the, the architecture, a lot of the, the street names uh, is actually – there's a lot of Scottish influence there. Oh, interesting. And it's interesting that one of um, my Swedish friends uh, – my, my guide in Gothenburg told me that there's a saying in Gothenburg that everybody in Gothenburg has a friend called Glenn. Oh, really? <laughs> and – one of my Swedish colleagues said, yeah, yeah, they say that. But, you know, I have no idea why because, like, Glenn doesn't seem like a, a, a very Swedish name. Right, right. So she she knew of this saying, but she didn't know that the reason for that is because of the Scottish influence in Gothenburg. Oh, wow. How oh, funny. And they've got a bit of a reputation for a funny sense of humor in Gothenburg, right? Yeah, that's correct. Yeah, I'm, I'm surprised that you know about that. That's um, <laughs> it, Gothenburg is basically the Osaka where... <laughs> Stockholm is the Tokyo, right. essentially, where, you know, here in Stockholm, we're all very posh and we're very kind of official and, you know, we're all very arrogant about the, our status as the most important, biggest city in the country, mm-hmm. just like in Tokyo. Right. And Osaka is kind of like the scrappy, you know, kind of underdog with the inferiority complex, you know, <laughs> kind of, you know, trying to sort of, trying to, trying to kind of uh, bite at the knees of, of the big brother or the big sister city. And then as a result, you know, have a, has a, a much more kind of, um, uh, I don't know, happy-go-lucky mm. approach to life, uh, much less serious. And that's the reason why a lot of the uh, comedians in Japan come from Osaka and from like, you know, West Japan. Mm. 
uh, and apparently Gothenburg is the same. I think it's also linguistic. I think that they're something to do with their intonation, mm-hmm. with its influences from, I, potentially from Scotland and from uh, Norway and Denmark, of course, mm-hmm. makes Gothenburg intonation in Swedish or an accent mm. sound very kind of um, jovial. <laughs> mm. <laughs> and uh, as a result, yeah, that's why I think people tend to have this impression of people from Gothenburg as being very sort of happy, funny people. Right. <laughs> I suppose that's quite similar to Osaka and, and Kansai as well, is that Kansai-ben itself, the accent, has this reputation as being like the accent that funny people have. Yeah, it's funny though that, that I think uh, Kansai-ben itself is um, much closer to you know, old traditional Japanese, like a lot of the mm. keigo, song keigo and kenjogo and those kinds of formal Japanese right. expressions you, are actually formal versions of kansai-ben. Right, right. Uh, and uh, that's obviously because of the history and the heritage in that area. So in the case of mm-hmm. Japanese, I think it's it's just coincidental that, you know, the comedians speak that way in kansai-ben and they tend right. to leave leave Osaka and they tend to retain their accent and be very proud to to keep it yeah um whereas i think in gothenburg i think it's actually an international thing where just Mm. it could be like rising tones or something like that which actually makes them sound very happy (laughs) interesting (laughs) i'm sure they are happy because it's a very very nice nice little town little town i mean i mean uh second biggest town yes biggest city that's right yes yes I wonder if America has an equivalent of this sort of Tokyo Osaka dichotomy or the the Stockholm Gothenburg dichotomy. America is so so big and has so many sort of diverse right areas. It's obviously got a couple of the sort of stereotypical accents, like the, the kind of Hick accent mm. and the the California surfer dude accent and mm. and all of that. But mm. I don't know if it's got a an accent which is associated with being funny. Like, I'm not sure if that's a thing. Maybe yeah. American listeners can inform us, but I'm not aware of a specific funny accent, you know, apart from the British accent. Right. Yeah. <laughs> um, or the Australian one, even worse. Right. Um, I think that, uh, yeah, I was actually wondering about whether there's this similar dichotomy between cities as far as, you know, we're the biggest city, we're the best and we're the second bit, second biggest city, but everybody knows that we're actually the best. I wonder if, like, maybe New York and Los Angeles, do they have that kind of rivalry? I don't know, because they're just so different. Like, mm. you know, New York is New York, and there's nothing like New York, really, right. any, anywhere in the world. And and Los Angeles is Hollywood. Right. And Sprawl. <laughs> <laughs> Hollywood right. and Sprawl, which is the name of my next album. <laughs> So it doesn't feel like they 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 need to attempt to compete with each other because they're just offering very different things, right? Right, right, right. There's a it feels like a little bit of rivalry between Northern California and Southern California, but again, okay. not really because they're just different. Yeah, I mean, I can understand within a state. Yeah, you can understand how that would be the case yeah. with the cities in a state. But I'm just wondering. Perhaps you're right. Perhaps just the country is is just too large. I mean, the state of California is about the size of, I think, the country of France. Right. So having competition within a state is not dissimilar from having competition within a country. Right. Right. In that sense. But then you know the the size of North America uh, of the United States of America and the size of Australia is comparable. Mm. However, uh, in Australia, we do have that rivalry between Sydney and Melbourne. Right. 
but that's i mean the size of the habitable area of australia is much right. smaller right that's right so i guess the population density is the key here right and the, uh, the just the number of cities i suppose as well yeah yeah so what true. would you say is the rivalry in australia between which places oh sydney and melbourne Sydney and Melbourne. Yeah, Sydney yeah, is. That makes sense. Yeah, Sydney is the largest city in Australia, and it's the the kind of commerce hub. Melbourne is uh, second largest, and it is kind of like the arts hub. Right, right. Melbourne is by far the better city. Right. <laughs> I say that because I'm I'm from Adelaide, and Adelaide is kind of like the worst city in Australia <laughs> as far as inferiority <laughs> complex goes. Adelaide has a serious, serious identity problem with with uh, trying to prove itself as being on the map. Is the is what the, the, the you know Adelaide on the map? We've got our own time zone. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> what a great reason to be on the map! It's like this weird, like oh, there's like you know nine hours and thirty minutes. Like who who does that? You've got a famous cricket ground, haven't you? And, yes, and we a do. Famous F one, don't you have a famous Formula One thing? No, that was bought by Melbourne. You see? Bastards. See? (laughs) Well, they do it much better than we did it. But uh, um, what does that? Adelaide has an excellent wine industry. It has uh, the Formula One Grand Prix used to be there. It has a great arts festival called the the Fringe Festival and Woe Adelaide, the WOMAD World Music Mm. Festival in Adelaide. So there's a lot of good music. It's kind of like the reason that I like Melbourne more than Sydney is just because Adelaide is sort of like a wannabe Melbourne. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, but it's on the map, so that's the important thing. That is, that is the important thing. Yeah. yeah, I suppose these things within culture. I mean, there exists a very similar sort of rivalry. I think. Well, there's a rivalry. I don't know if the stereotypes match, but between Edinburgh and Glasgow and, and Scotland, which we were talking mm. about earlier. Right, right, exactly. Uh, again, there's a. I think my grandpa, who is from near Glasgow, from very close to where Chris is from, actually. Uh, I think he used to have a bumper sticker on his car that just said Glasgow's better. <laughs> it didn't have to say where it was better than. It was, right, right. <laughs> it was just like, <laughs> right. it's better in Glasgow. Right. What's the second largest city in England? I think it's Birmingham. It's either Birmingham or Manchester. Okay. And I think it's Birmingham. Right. And that's what I was about to say is that I don't think that thing really exists in England. Because in okay. England, there's London. Mm. And London, again, is just so distinct. It's a bit like New York. It's so far removed from everything else that, right. you know, after London, there's Newcastle and there's Manchester and there's Birmingham who can all sort of fight over the spoils. Right. But they're, you know, none of them really feel like they're directly competing with London. Uh, right, right. I see. So they tend to compete with each other, like Manchester and Liverpool. <laughs> yeah, I suppose. Yeah, I forgot I forgot to mention Liverpool. I'll probably get in trouble for that. But, uh... <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Well, it's okay. I'm sure no one from Liverpool is actually listening to Station 13 because they've all got far better things to be doing with their day than uh, listening to us, like being better than Manchester, I guess. Right, yeah. If that's what they do, uh, I really don't know. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, Manchester <laughs> and Liverpool. Well, I think we've just lost all three of our listeners from both Manchester and Liverpool right there. <laughs> Very good. Good work, everybody. Okay, well... That about sums it up then. (laughs) 